Good morning, all. It is good to see you. Thank you all for being here, and it's neat to see so many from different places, and thank you so much, uh, Dana Goodnow and the staff here at uh, Pittsford Community Church for hosting us and allowing us to do this great breakfast, and I think everybody should give a round of applause for food. Yes. And for, uh, for the time that we get together, I see uh, uh, now we've got a number of different churches here, and, and I hope you get to know each other in those different capacities. Uh, Dave Theobald from uh, Grace Baptist in Dansville had a little trouble finding us this morning, um, but he made up for it by playing the piano for us this morning. Uh, Emery Brown just texted me. He's having a little trouble finding us, but he'll be here. Uh, at least I hope so. That's the, uh, that's the idea. Uh, this is a big topic, and I'm going to try and lay out some, some big landscape ideas, and then in the second session, bring it down. I'll come back and refer to that in just a moment. But let me read one portion of Scripture, pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into this first, this first presentation. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to pick up in verse 3. Paul begins there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning for this time together, as has already been prayed, we ask that Christ would be exalted above all things. Come and teach us, Holy Spirit, that we might serve you well. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as you can tell by that portion we just read, uh, God is a God of order. Uh, creation displays it everywhere. And I don't have a remote clicker, so my poor guy back there, click. Whenever I say click, the slide will change. So that, I'm sorry to do that to you, but you know, that, that'll work as good as anything. It's better than pounding on the pulpit with something or firing a gun. Uh, God's uh, a God of order, and you see that in creation. You can't miss it, and especially if you read Genesis 1 through 3, uh, without seeing over and over in those portions how it is that God uh, is meticulous in His arrangement of everything that He does, both in terms of the natural creation and beyond. Uh, so we see that in this, this first portion in Ephesians that in every place God has a purpose. He's got a, a will set out. He didn't just create the universe and then say, oh, well, let's see what happens. This will be fun. I'm going to create a physical universe and then I'm just going to let it spin. No, he had a, an end purpose in mind. And in salvation, 
Christ has a purpose in reuniting all things in heaven and on earth in their proper place, which tells us something's gotten out of order in the process. Click. I want to note one thing here before we go too far. At the very outset, I'm going to come back to this later and it'll make more sense. And again, I'm going to put out some big stuff and then we're going to tie these threads together and bring it all for you. So bear with me in this first session. Um, but in 2 Peter 3, we read this, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, talking about the heavens and the earth there, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? I just want to put your nose on one term there, and it's the term godliness. We're going to come back and revisit this later, but that word carries with it certain connotations. And part of it is that the idea of piety or reverence, which is applied or lived out in being in right relationship or proper relationship, both with God and with the other authority areas that we deal with in life. And I, we're, again, we're going to come back and visit that in the second portion, but I want to just get a little bit on that, that word. We'll come back to that in the second session. But suffice it to say, when God created the physical universe, He did so bringing everything into a certain order. And that order demonstrates proper relationship between things, things that are higher, things that are lower, and things that are equal. Let me take you back. Uh, in the late 1800s, there was a theologian, a Dutch theologian, by the name of Abraham Kuyper. Kuyper was a fascinating character. Um, he wrote his fascinating book on the Holy Spirit in uh, 1863 when he was at the University of Amsterdam. And then he went on to become Prime Minister of the Netherlands. And in his role as prime minister, he also believed that his job was to bring national revival to his people. He developed a, a theory during that time called sphere sovereignty. Uh, and basically it says this, God ordained distinct domains of being in action. And that each has its own area of delegated sovereignty or authority which is not to be violated by others. And if each one stays within their own area without trying to meddle with the others, you have harmony. Uh, we see this all the time, and this is a real problem in our current age. Our age loves the concept of autonomy. I mean, it's where everybody is right now. I run my own life, or, you know, uh, really the best one who set it out there in the, in the most propositional form was Malcolm from Malcolm in the Middle, where his repeated mantra is, you're not the boss of me. Everybody wants autonomy. We want other people to help us and support us in our autonomy, but we want to be our own boss in every realm. And this disregards whether or not God has set up order in another way. The Bible sets out a number of these spheres of authority that Kuiper refers to, and those spheres are most often designated by the word obey. 
There'll be something given and, or, or someone or something in a position of authority and someone or something needs to obey that one that's in authority. So there's this responsibility that goes both ways. And this structure of authority and autonomy and obedience uh, enters in everywhere. And you can't miss it in the Bible. And we're going to tease out a bunch of those this morning. So these spheres of authority, or circles of authority, which we're going to use here, may overlap, but each has its own responsibilities ordained by God. And I want to, again, to try and unpack those big concepts for you in this first session. And then in the second session, we're going to come down and we're going to concentrate on just one sphere and what that really means for you and me. So click. The first sphere that we have is God himself. God is the supreme authority. He has absolute right to rule over his creation because he made it. If you were to invent something or build something, it's yours and you have mastery over it. You know what you designed it for and you have authority over it. And the same thing is true with God. And since he made everything, he has absolute authority over it. So God and his will is that first sphere of authority and it encompasses everything. It culminates in Jesus Christ. God's authority is absolute. Nobody can challenge it. All the others derive their authority from his appointments. Now, this is going to be very important as we come down to relationships in a little bit. D.A. Carson wrote this, God, the unauthored author of all, is the primal and final authority. So, we all have somebody who's the boss of us. All creation does. And that's God himself. So, in creation, all of the physical creation simply comes into being and responds to his voice. And it's interesting the Bible tends to use the word authority often in places where we would think you would use the word power, as though you have raw power. All it took for God to create the universe was to will it to be so. But that's because of his authority. When Jesus called the disciples to go out and minister, first in the 12 and then in the 70, it says that he gave them authority authority over the spirits. He didn't give them some innate ability, but acting on his behalf, they had authority. And that authority is what really uh, brought things to pass. So the whole universe responded. He created things out of his power in his, in his authority. It came to be. Click. We get a great example of this in Daniel chapter 4. Maybe my, my favorite chapter in the whole of the Bible. It's Nebuchadnezzar after he's been confronted by God with his, with his thought of autonomy. After he had been warned by the prophet, he stood up on the top of, of the, uh, the city of Babylon and said, isn't this Babylon the great that I have made? And he was exerting his authority, and God humbled him. And in the process of his humbling, it says at the end of days, this was three and a half years probably of humbling, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. It's unreasonable not to understand God's order of things. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation 
All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's authority. (laughs) Absolute authority. And we need to note here that since God alone has absolute authority, all the other areas that we're going to discuss today are not only derivative of His authority, they're only delegated by Him, but they're also limited. They can only go so far. We'll see what that looks like as we move on, but let me let it suffice to say here that no one in any sphere of authority, and we'll discuss our individual spheres of authority, has the right to require anything of anyone else that's contradictory to God's commands and His rights. So, no one can require anyone else to do anything that's immoral or illegal or contrary to their conscience or unjustifiably dangerous. Even the government has a very limited authority there. They might require some justifiable commands to enter into danger, but it's never at the mere whim of an individual. It has to do with much bigger things than this. It's under these larger structures. Uh, Click. We get a picture of this in Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's not making a, a suggestion here. He's saying, based on my authority and my supreme authority in, all, in heaven and earth, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. So here's God's authority and it culminates in Jesus Christ. We see that and as we read in Ephesians, God's final purpose is going to be in Christ bringing all things together. Click. The second sphere under that click is the sphere of nature. And I've put that in large circles, you know, God's circle all-encompassing, nature underneath that, but there is a created order. Uh, Now, there's two parts to this uh, click. Man is over nature, uh, but also man is under nature. We've got an interesting dynamic there. We'll see this. In Genesis 1.26, when God created man, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Click. 2.15, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So God was given a certain dominion over the creation, but he doesn't have absolute dominion. And isn't it interesting that right now in our culture, the thing that we want to exercise dominion over is the weather. Mankind is obsessed that we can can have dominion over the climate. Yeah, it's not working out very good, is it? But, but you see, we want to move outside the sphere that we do have and move into another one because we're never happy with the circle that God puts us in. 
Now, Adam shows his authority, and this is one of the things that comes out in Scripture and is a, a cultural thing. Um, Adam shows his authority in the naming of the animals. One of the things that the Bible uses as, a, as an ongoing uh, referent is that when you name something, you have authority over it. So, so discoveries now get people's names. When they discover a star, when they discover a new, a new uh, procedure medically or whatever, that person's name gets attached to it. You show your authority as a parent, if you're one who has children, by naming them. You say, this is what this child is. I, I have that position. I call it what I call it. And God says to Adam, good, name the animals. Use your authority. Go ahead and, and work that out. And, and so he names them. And then there's an authority set up in the home right from the very beginning. Um, man, this is man as part of nature. And again, we're going to come back to this later. But in Romans 1, 18 through 27, at the very least, we'll learn in that passage that when we as human beings under God's authority try to circumvent our sphere that he ordained in nature, there's always a price to pay. I'm going to come back to that in detail in the second session. So, so it is that no one can safely defy the law of gravity or inertia. I'm under nature in its sphere of authority. And it seems to be exerting more and more authority the older I get. Uh, that, that's the way it works. No one can live apart from food or water or air because that's part of the sphere of authority that God has given to nature. And those laws bind us. We can't, we can't uh, not, not be bound under them. There's a third sphere, click, and that's the home. And so this one's considerably smaller, as you see. It's got a, a smaller uh, frame. And this has to do with parents and parents' designees, those that we might use. Uh, like if you hire a babysitter for your kids, that person's working under your authority to do what you need for your child. Uh, you see that in... Uh, Oh, the hills are alive with the sound of music, right? That's, uh, they hire a governess, but the governess serves the children, but serves at the behest of the parent. This is the way it works in the church as well. Pastors, we serve your needs, but we serve at the behest of the Father, not at your behest. It's a little different dynamic, and it has to be kept in its proper place. So in this, husbands and wives, there's order among equals, click. So we read in Ephesians, whoops, you went one too far, back up, Ephesians 5, thank you. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Click. We get this in Colossians 3 as well. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. But as we already mentioned, and we're going to come back and deal with this later, none of these spheres is absolute because they're delegated. And so there's certain things that get shared there. Since husbands and wives have a shared sphere in the home, and they have certain responsibilities and submissions that belong to each other, 
sometimes proper negotiations have to break through. For instance, 1 Corinthians 7. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, but likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So now we've got two spheres of authority that need to cooperate with each other, and neither one is absolute. Something has to be worked out there in cooperation. So I know some would like to say, man, the wife, she is to submit to my authority to a degree, but not absolute because she's got a responsibility to God that's higher than her responsibility to you. So those, those spheres have to be worked out. And this is, this is what I'm laying out in the first part is the complexity. And it's great. It'll just be very confusing and lots of pain. Uh, children factor into this. Click. Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. But it doesn't end there because it also says, well, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The children are to submit, but that's not an absolute authority as though it's authority to God. There's, there's some, some interaction there. Click, Colossians 3. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord, but he isn't done yet. So fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So there's some interaction here, and it has to be measured out. Click. Our fourth sphere is the sphere of civil government or civil authorities. This is where things start to get a little dicey. This is where it gets more complicated, and it's even more fun. We see this emerging, especially after the flood. Prior to the flood, you don't see civil government per se. You see the home. But after the flood, after God says that men were just doing whatever they wanted to do, whatever uh, their own thoughts were, each man uh, simply following the dictates of his own intentions, then, then governments start to arise. And then later, we're told in Romans 13, some rather startling stuff in that regard. Let every person, oh, click. Oh, thank you, beat me to it, thank you. You're the, you're the best. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. These are civil governments, and this is Paul writing to people who were under Roman occupation. A government they didn't like. A government that had usurped its authority over them. This is a struggle. Now, again, it's a sphere. It's not absolute authority. We'll see where that, where that interacts in a little bit. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, now I know what we want to do is insert in that passage, but if the government does wrong, 
But he doesn't go there. He says, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authority, boy, that grates me. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. So pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, not not respect to whom has earned respect, but to whom respect is owed. It's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? And so we find this, and we'll come back and visit a little bit of this, but it's more in us. In essence, if I can use something that's very contemporary, now I don't know who you voted for, and you don't know who I voted for. But I'll tell you what I cannot do by God's command. I cannot say, that's not my president. I don't have that right. Even if Hillary were president, I would not be allowed to say, biblically, that's not my president. Now, that's, that's a struggle I'm not sure I always want to wrestle with. You see, I want autonomy. I want to limit the spheres of authority. When Scripture says no, because God is ultimate authority, He's the one who limits the spheres, and we have to function within them, even when other people don't. Now, isn't that grating? It is to me. That's why I carry a gun. There's people I want to deal with. Uh, Click. There's another sphere. We'll have to move past the Roman stuff here. Excellent. Here's another sphere. It's the sphere of the church. There's an authority structure within the church. And so you have in Hebrews 13, click, Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What? Church actually has a sphere of authority? Yeah. If you're a Christian, it does. And sometimes we don't even want to recognize that. That doesn't enter into our thought process. That there's actually a God-given authority structure within the church and that we're somehow to obey those leaders. But what if those leaders are really dumb and stinky? We have scripture for that too. Uh, Click. Matthew 23. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. Now this is a corrupt church structure. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. Yowza! Jesus is telling his own disciples that they ought to obey what the scribes and Pharisees tell them to do. Now again, no delegated authority is absolute. We'll see how that works out later. But that's the general principle. And I have to work within that. Hmm, fascinating. Let's move on to the next one. Click. Sphere six is work. Work. 
click, Ephesians 6 and a couple other places bring out some interesting dynamics here. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, in this case, it was slavery. Hey, Emery has made it. God bless you, brother. We're glad you're here. Sorry you missed breakfast, but I, I ate for you. It was With Paul, I was buffeting my body. I was doing all I could to be biblical. Um, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, dare I say, and I've, I've had my, my time in the secular workplace, I have not always obeyed my boss at work as and making a direct connection to saying, you know what, I need to obey Christ in this. I've, I've wanted to be very autonomous. I had a boss once, oh, this is going to make me go over time, it's great. Um, I had a boss once, a woman, and she and I clashed a lot, mainly because she was a woman. And, uh, and she was over me, and, and I didn't like it. But she was my boss. And so Thanksgiving came, and there was an issue at the office. And <clears throat> she called me at home and said, you need to come in and handle this problem. And I was already ticked off at her because they had hired a replacement for my previous job, and they were paying my replacement, who I trained, more than they were paying me now with my promotion. So I was ticked off. Of course, it's their right to pay whoever they want to pay, whatever they want to pay them. If I wanted something different, I should have negotiated that. That's my own stupid fault. But I was just ticked off. And so she said, you need to come in and take care of this. And I said, no, it's Thanksgiving. I'm staying home with my family. Click. After Thanksgiving holiday, I went into the office, and the first thing she did was sit me down, and she wrote me up to put it in my permanent file. And I was scorched. In a way, I actually took that as a badge. She wrote this against me. Good. It was probably a year later after I had left the job that the Holy Spirit was really dealing with my heart. And I called her up and said, can I see you? And I went back and I met with her and I said, I was so wrong as a Christian. I had no right to treat you that way. I should have recognized your, your proper place and I was rebelling against that and I'm going to ask your forgiveness and ask it before the Lord. She was very gracious. She forgave me. In time, the Lord was really gracious because her daughter got saved later and then led her to Christ about a year before she died of brain cancer. But it was a wonderful opportunity to go back and say, I was working outside God's order. I wanted my own authority. I did not want to submit to her authority. And she had a rightful place of authority. Just as we see even in this passage. So to serve that earthly master with fear and trembling and a sincere heart as I would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart and rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. Click. 
This is repeated for us in Colossians 3. Bondservants obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. But my boss is a bozo. Well, of course he is. The Peter principle does work. Everyone rises to the level of their incompetence. Most of my bosses have been jerks. They haven't known half what I've known. And that's still true. No, no, that's not the way it works. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance is your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there's no partiality. Now again, which authority by an employer is not seen as absolute? For in each passage, the employer's responsibility before God is is brought to the forefront by saying they're going to have to give an answer to God for how they exercised their authority. That's always noted as well. So we always fall back to that. Click. There's a seventh sphere. And that's the sphere of conscience. This also has authority over us. In Acts 23 and 24, uh, Paul especially notes how he was very careful not to, not to violate his own conscience, but to look at that. And then in Romans 13 and 1 Corinthians 8 and later, he addresses people and that it's not safe for us to violate our consciences since it appears the, the, the conscience, however marred it is, is still a leftover vestige of our having been created in the image of God. And so that innate sense of right and wrong, uh, which, which then we find out in Scripture, the conscience, though it's marred, can be re-informed and brought to a better place so it understands things. It can be improved. And then lastly, there is the sphere of self. Click. Self. Oh, this is the ugly one. This is where we're going to spend our time in the second one. Authority over self or what is more often called in Scripture, self-control. That's where we're going to come back in the second session. For in our redemption, the chief place of restored order and authority within the human being is in this area, having authority restored over ourselves. Now, it's interesting. See, what we want to do is we want to correct the other authority spheres. We want to correct government when it's not exercising authority well. We want to correct the church when it's not exercising its authority well. We want to correct wives when they're not exercising their authority properly. We want to exercise authority over our boss and correct them. We've got all these other areas, and as you've seen in secular society right now, we want to correct nature because it's not operating properly. But the bigger issue is that in salvation, he's dealing with with restoring authority over self. We'll see it in a little while, how that, that authority was broken and what it looks like and why we need this correction. But we're reminded, say in Galatians 5, that self control is a fruit of the indwelling spirit. Or click. 2 Timothy 1, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and 
self-control, authority restored to us, over us. Click, 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, there may be a few other spheres in Scripture, spheres of authority, uh, hinted at at least in 1 Corinthians 15 and Ephesians 1 and 3 and 6, the angelic orders have their own sphere of authority and how that functions. We have nothing to do with that directly, so uh, I won't go there. But let me make four closing observations, and I know I've thrown a lot at you in terms of this big picture of these areas of authority, but let me make four observations to tie these together and then lead us into that next session, the next session I'll do, Emery's going to be coming up for the very next one, and, and put this together. The first observation, click, is that these spheres of authority overlap in places. And so living in godliness will require you and me thinking through how this works and ordering our lives accordingly. It's not going to be an easy thing. There's going to be some complexity here. For instance, and we've already mentioned this a little bit, a man has authority over his wife, but he does not have absolute authority over his wife. She has a primary responsibility to God's authority over her husband's. My wife, my wife and I argue about this all the time. <laughs> Children are in the same place. They have their parents over them, but their, their parental authority is not absolute. Matter of fact, it can, it can encroach with the state. Dave Theobald would be, would able, be able to give you an interesting example of how those spheres intersected a, a, a while back with his own son when he had fallen and, and broken his leg and how the state interferes. But, you know, absolute authority. I do not have the authority to beat my wife. The state will interfere, and it should. That's where those spheres will interlock, and I'm responsible. And I'm responsible not only to the state, I'm responsible to God for it. And believe me, God's tougher than the state. So those are areas where we're going to have to think through how these work because no delegated sphere of authority is absolute. It all comes under God's and it all has to be taken in, in concert with the other areas of authority that God has established. Let me show you an interesting place in Scripture where that comes up. It's in John chapter 19. This is when Jesus is before Pilate and Pilate was interrogating Jesus and in verse 8 it says, When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered his headquarters again and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, 
you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. He's, he's acknowledging Pilate's authority and at the same time saying, but I recognize that authority is a delegated authority. You don't just take it to yourself. It's got its limits. And then he goes beyond it and says, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin, more than likely referring to Caiaphas, who acting on behalf of the Jewish church, if we want to call it that, was the one who handed him over to Pilate. Fascinating. But Jesus doesn't say, you guys have no right here. Pilate, you can't do what you're supposed to do. He says, no, you've, you've got a delegated authority, and I'm going to recognize it. In the very moment when he's about to be sentenced to death. Isn't that astounding? But there's another place where it clashes, and it's interesting in Scripture. That's in Acts 5. You're all familiar with this. The the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees, the priests, had gotten together and had told the disciples that they were not to preach and teach in the name of Jesus. And so they said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. You see, your, your authority is genuine, but it's not absolute. You can't, and, and this, is, this is the basic principle. I wish I could spend time on this because I love it out of Daniel. I've learned so much when I preach through Daniel. This is, the, this is where all authorities meet their same parameters. No authority, no authority structure. The state, a parent, anybody else. No authority structure has the right to require me to do anything God's Word forbids me to do or forbid me to do anything God's Word requires me to do. And under those two circumstances, not only should I disobey, I'm required to disobey under God's authority. But i got to be sure those are clear in Scripture and not just my personal preferences. That's where those spheres have to be carefully delegated because, again, in salvation, Christ is bringing all these things back into their proper order where they've been distorted and where they, they aren't handled in a proper way. Daniel 1, I find this always remarkable. Now, Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael were all part of the royal family, as we learn earlier in that chapter. They were part of the group that was taken by Nebuchadnezzar and hauled off to Babylon, and they were put into his service. They were going to be trained for a period of time. And I find this absolutely fascinating with Daniel. Again, being part of the royal family and should be having authority back in his sphere in Israel is now a captive in Babylon. And he is told by the eunuch who is over these four guys and training them for the next three years, listen, you're going to have to eat every day from the king's table. And Daniel's response is astounding. You're a pagan, and you have no right to tell me that. No, actually, that's not in the text. Now, this is what he does. In verse 8, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, listen to his approach. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. 
God's man going and asking for permission in an area that even dealt with his own conscience? Yeah. That's amazing, isn't it? And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael later will go on to refuse to worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar sets up. See, that authority's not absolute. It's got places where it stops. But I must add with them in that, when they said we're going to refuse that authority, they were also completely willing to suffer the consequences. This is where we often fail. No, I want to violate the authority, but I want to do it with impunity. It doesn't go there. They said, when the king said, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace, they said, hey, God's capable of delivering us, and if he doesn't deliver us out of the fire, either way, we're going to be delivered, and we're not bowing down. Okie dokie. But you catch, you catch how little attitude they've got when the king calls to them in the fire and says, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And they said, O king, live forever. What? I think most of us would have been yelling obscenities back. You have no power over us. We can stand in the fire. And instead they go, O king, live forever. That's a whole different mindset, isn't it? No one can usurp God's authority in our lives, but no one can usurp outside of our own restrictions, our spheres of authority. So as I've already said, no one has the authority to require you to do something God specifically forbids in His Word, nor forbids you to do anything that God specifically requires in His Word. No authority is absolute except God's and God's alone. All others are derivative and limited. I know I beat that horse a lot, but bear with me. It'll bear fruit later. Second observation, click. In those places where you and I exercise authority over others, it is always to be done with the eternal good of the persons in mind before God and not according to our personal desires. So we read in Romans 13, Owe no man anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And who, men, is your closest neighbor? If you're married, it's your wife. And it's your kids. And then it's your boss. And it's your literal neighbor. Now, what that looks like is so beautifully teased out in 1 Corinthians 13. I won't spend a lot of time on this. Let me just... And maybe give you an alternate way of reading this in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient and is kind. Let me tease that out. Why is love patient? Because love's kind. 
The problem with lack of patience is a lack of kindness. Love does not envy, so it doesn't boast. Boasting only comes about when I envy somebody else and I need to somehow make myself look bigger in their eyes. Love is not arrogant, so as a result, it's not rude. Rudeness comes from arrogance. Love doesn't insist on its own way, and so it's not irritable or resentful. Find yourself irritable and resentful a lot? It's probably a problem with love. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing because it rejoices instead with the truth. Rejoicing at wrongdoing is kind of being glad when the other person messes up, so you got a little something on them. That's not love. Don't we just love to skewer the other guy? We just wait for him to mess up. You see, love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. That's the nature of love. Love seeks the best of the other party before God. Not for our own pleasure or according to our own whims, but we want them to see, and if at all possible, to experience the goodness and grace and mercy and loving kindness of God through us, at our hands. So what if in the marriage relationship or with your kids, you start to see that your, your responsibility of love within your sphere of authority is to say, I want you to experience the tenderness of God through me. I want you to experience the forgiveness of God through me, the patience of God through me, the goodness of God through me. Man, that's a whole different place, isn't it? That's a whole different place. And it's interesting. When you're doing that, you don't have to say to them, now you better submit. Because nowhere in the Scripture except in the case of children when they're still small, are we ever called to exercise that authority that way over them? The Bible addresses them to submit just as it addresses us to submit, but doesn't call us to require the other person to submit to us. It's a different mind. This will temper what spouses require of each other and what employers require of employees and what church leaders require of congregants. Third observation, click. And I've got, to, I've got to run quickly. I know I've gone long. God's main way of exercising authority is via persuasion. He publishes his clear and unambiguous will in his word. And that's his main way of exercising his authority. Just through persuasion. Click. Isaiah 66, whoops, no, unclick. <laughs> well, that's all right, you can leave it up. Isaiah 66, 2, all these things my hand has made, God speaking. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And then with the word through the spirit to work in the heart and the mind to incline us toward what is better. 
And I love that word incline. I, I take it out of um, a number of places in the Old Testament, especially the Psalms. But in Philippians 2, uh, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Or Psalm 110, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Or, or the psalmist's prayer in 119.36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your way. Authority is best exercised in persuasion, not the barking out of orders. Because that's God's main method. He reasons all the way through his book, doesn't he? And even says that, come, let us reason together. Let me talk about your sinfulness. But let's, let's reason through it. Let's actually talk through all that's involved in that. But we much, much would rather... Just make pronouncements. So simple, isn't it? If people would just obey. Fourth, click. Fourth observation is that what happens when we do not function within the order that God has decreed? I have a simple phrase for it. It's called the fall. It's called the fall. And such falls always incorporate two aspects of violating God's order and authority structures. I'm going to hit these briefly and we'll close. The first is when we submit, fail to submit to God's authority. Now this is exactly what happened in the garden. See, all of the fall came about from this very issue, breaking out of these circles of God's authority. So God said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man said, but I'm going to be autonomous and be my own authority. I have a better way. And the fall is the result. There's no end of destruction that comes from breaking outside of God's authority structures. No end. And it will permeate every place. But the second aspect of violating God's authority structure in this passage is in the abdication of proper authority. So Eve took after the suggestion, the discussion, with the serpent. Neither Adam nor Eve took their rightful sphere of authority over the serpent. He was one of the animals that Adam named. He had authority over the serpent. He wasn't supposed to be taking advice from the serpent. He was supposed to be passing on God's information to the serpent. But as soon as we abdicate our proper role of authority, we contribute then to the fall. So both sides are demonstrated for us right at the very beginning. And what comes as a result of the violation of those things? Chaos and death and destruction. And this is why in our salvation, Christ saves us in part to reverse all of those things and to put us back in right relationship, that godliness, to all of the, the structures that he's put in place. Because where it is we refuse to submit to God's authority and authority structures in our own lives, there's always going to be chaos and destruction. 
and where it is we might be abdicating our own derived authority. This is a place for each of us to ask the question. Where am I refusing God's authority structures? And where am I abdicating where I ought to be? And whether either or both, and I'd argue you can't have one without the other, you're going to have chaos and order and destruction. But there is one area which first and foremost, God calls us to recover a property authority structure in and one sphere for us, and that's going to be the subject of our next, of our next time. We're going to come back to that. Now, I'll, I'll, let me close with this. I've, I've already closed three times. Three times the charm. There's a great story told about a father and a little girl, and uh, he was putting her into her car seat, and she wouldn't sit down in the car seat. She wouldn't get buckled in. And she'd strain, and she'd arch her back. And, you know, and her father's really getting angry, and he said, you know, finally, after much cajoling and talking and threatening and everything else that went with that, Finally, he got the little girl in the car seat and he buckled her in and they're driving down the road and he looks over at her and you can see this look on her face. And he goes, what's going on? And she said, I'm still standing up inside. I think that's a lot of the way that we tend to submit to God's authority structures outside of ourselves. Whether it's in the church or the government or the workplace or the home. Oh yeah, I'll conform outwardly, but I'm still standing up inside. And that's not what he's called us to. He's called us to a place of wonderful order that removes the pain and the, the result of the chaos and destruction that comes when we step outside the things he's placed in order and try to do it ourselves. Father, I thank you uh, for your word and for... Uh, what's been placed before us here, I know we've looked at a lot and it's, and it's kind of scattered and we need to tie all these things together. But I thank you for the privilege of being together with these men and discussing these things and, and uh, digging through your word to see how you frame the order of this world we're meant to live in. You don't want us to live in the disorder of sin. And sin is always disorder. It always brings chaos and distress. How your own heart is to finally unite all things in Christ, to put them all back into their proper frame. Because you are a God who delights to bless your people. You created us to live in the joy and the wonder of being made in your image. And our unwillingness has ruined that. And in salvation, you begin that process of restoration and we are grateful for it. Bless it to us, Lord. Help us learn and grow, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.